In this week's episode, we speak with Grace Tame. The former Australian of the Year needs no introduction, shooting to household fame in 2021 for the forthright way in which he articulated the case for a better understanding of, and action on behalf of, victims of childhood sexual abuse. Tame has more recently set up a not-for-profit foundation to help campaign against such abuse and for the rights of victims. She has also penned a memoir, The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner, to be published by Pan Macmillan in late September. Hosting this conversation with Grace is Jacqueline Maley, a senior writer and columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, who has written extensively about issues around women, politics and abuse. Grace Tame, welcome to Good Weekend Talks. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a real it's pleasure. It's not the weekend. <laughs> um, we don't tell anyone that. We want to maintain the facade of weekend um, in this podcast. Grace, it's really nice to have you here. You've written a memoir. Um, I want to hear why you wanted to write a memoir. Just a light question to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> I should have warmed you up more, shouldn't I? Well, look, while I'm eternally grateful for the opportunities that I've had over the years, especially as a survivor of child sexual abuse, to tell my story at various points, something that I don't think is well understood is that I actually haven't had a lot of control over the narrative. Mm -hmm. Such is the landscape of the media that the public don't see the machinations behind the scenes Mm -hmm. and survivors whose trauma is never really past it's always present and who rarely have any prior experience of something like the media Mm. step into a space like news with very little experience of how it runs and they have been contacted by somebody or multiple people who have an agenda themselves and what can happen intentionally or otherwise is that you know competing agendas and interests can collide and often survivors will actually have to relinquish control and autonomy again Mm -hmm. and only certain parts of narratives can make it into the story at a time or into the sorry into the public um space at a time and also when somebody goes through something as inherently complex and layered as child sexual abuse whereby you only realize and process details of it in a very uh, almost sort of drip-fed manner. Like a sort of incremental Incremental manner. Often you don't, things don't occur to you at the time or until somebody else frames your experience in a context that you previously hadn't thought to frame it in. I've had many moments as a person who's also autistic and doesn't think in a linear, neurotypical way. I've had experiences where I'll be live on national television and a journalist will ask me a question that I wasn't prepared for, that Mm. came out of left field, and 
it might be a simple question to anybody else, you know, because again, I, I'm a neurodiverse person. I think in a, what I call a curvy linear roundabout way. And in fact, my book is written in a very, uh, you know, unconventional structure, mm-hmm. as you know, as somebody who's read my book and you can hear me now yeah. already going off a t- on a tangent <laughs> and don't worry, I'll come back there. Um, my washing machine brain will return um, in, in its psych, in its weird cyclical way. And so it's, it's often in those situations and because I'm, you know, a, again, one of my symptoms is as an autistic person who's had to live um, in such a way that I, I've become a natural masker and mimic, mimic mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. And so people can't necessarily tell that I'm just like performing in the moment and yeah. not in a, not in a, um, inauthentic way or a way that's disingenuous, but just that, that that's like, that's my natural yeah. way of surviving. Yeah. But that it's not until somebody just sort of simply goes, oh, but what about this? And then you literally see, or maybe not, won't see, but the scales actually just drop in real time and the pennies come showering down and are actually just knocking on the sides of my own and brain. And I am have to do real-time processing that would normally be done within the four private walls of, you know, a therapist's office or just, you know, at home. Whereas I've lived so many of my firsts or um, mm. had my moments of processing um, in front of the camera or under public scrutiny. And that's not something, you know, I say to sound as though I'm ungrateful, but that's just sort of like the reality. And also I first sort of started doing this, you know, before I was named Australian of the Year as well. I was contacted back in 2017 um, by Nina Fennell, an incredible journalist who as, created as the... As part of the Let Us yeah, Speak Yeah, she campaign. created the, like, yep. and runs the Let Her Speak and Let Us Speak campaigns of, you know, there's 17 survivors who've lent their stories to the, to the campaign. Mm-hmm. Such as the nature of these things is that at many points, by nobody's sort of fault, is that... Working on these things, there's often not time to sit and think because advocacy and campaigning is such that you are like under the pump. It's lots and lots of back then like unpaid work, yeah. um, you know, and and like it's trauma work. This 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 space is inherently fraught. And so the book the book in the sense is a way of you processing the last the frenetic last couple of years that you've had with the let her speak campaign and then with the australian oh, of the look, year look outside and then of that though of- like you know because the let her speak campaign was actually quite a small part of my story and, and behind that and before that like you know i was abused 12 years ago by the the man who abused me with, with um, this is with nicolas bester the school yeah, teacher who Besta. was convicted of um, abusing you correct and, you know, since uh, uh, Max, my partner, Max and I did, um, uh, Karen Middleton also spoke in the episode and Nina Fennell actually also spoke in the episode. My cousin spoke in the episode. My friend, um, Madison Cullis. This spoke is the, in the Australian episode. story Australian that you episode. did. Yep. Was that, that was last year or the year mm-hmm. before? The end of yeah. last year. Yeah. The end of 2021. Now, like my story predates, you know, the, like the Let Her Speak campaign. It predates, you know, Nina um, connecting with my mother and with me, you know, reaching out to, to, to um, it was actually to Heidi LaPaglia, um, who's uh, an incredible person. She was the president of the um, University of Tasmania Women's Collective, who started a petition at the University of Tasmania. Which, yeah, that's, I mean, that's all sort of covered in your book. Yeah, that's the, all covered the, in the book. That was but, the- but again, like my, my story is obviously like I'm 27, 27 years old. I think more to the point is that, you know, this is one of the things that I've, one of the many things that I've come to realise is that 
By virtue of the way that I, I guess, was raised and lived my life, and I try to retain a positive attitude despite, you know, a lot of the things that I've gone through. Like we all go through as human beings, mm. um, um, shit. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, life is like that. Um, you know, to varying degrees. Many children of divorce. You know, their life is destabilized. I suppose. Yeah. And this and is something that you talk about in the book that you that you were. Not a clean skin, if you like, when you met your abuser, who was a school teacher at your school, you were already destabilised and you, you know, you sort of make that quite clear or you elucidate that well in the book and particularly because you were suffering from an eating disorder at the time. And I think it's an important part of the book because it shows people that abusers choose their victims very wisely and with a real sixth sense for the kinds of children who might be easier victims for them. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, I mean, children by virtue of their age are vulnerable targets. I mean, it's one in six boys, one in four girls will experience uh, sexual abuse before their 18th birthday. It's a much less gendered uh, crime than sexual assault that occurs over the age of 18. And in my advocacy, I have sat with and work alongside survivors of from you know many and diverse backgrounds you know and um yep. uh, there is no just as there is no stereotype of a perpetrator there is no stereotype of a survivor yeah one of the things that i i guess you know i like don't like to use cliches too much but i bash my head against a wall um metaphorically because these terms of you know like snowflake and whatever they're so pointless because it's not about being weak or um, incapable. Traumatising a person is as good as traumatising, you know, a Rottweiler. Mm. Like some of these men who have been abused, for example, are, you know, like bikers. Like yes. they're, they're yeah, you know, yeah. big gruff guys who yeah. are three times the size of me and they've yeah. got beards. Um, and it's, I just say a lot of the prison population has been abused in some way or the other. Oh, my yeah. gosh, yes. Yeah. And I don't know what the experience of being a man is like, obviously, but in, in, in some ways, just as in some ways for different reasons, it's harder as a female because, you know, like, like women in smaller bodies would have challenges with the threat of, like, I have to, for example, as a five foot three woman, make myself bigger mm. in ways because I don't have a bigger body. Do you feel that? Yes, I do feel yeah. that, yeah. And do you think, um, we're jumping around a bit here, but I mean people, particularly since you're made Australian of the Year, you developed a reputation for being quite outspoken. Is that something that, is that a way that you saw yourself before? Is that part of the kind of the bigness oh. that you try to take on to counteract? Not at all. No? I mean, I'm quite an, um, I'm quite an introverted person in in my private life a lot of the time. So yeah. I, I'm one of those people who's, I guess, introvert, extrovert. Like, yeah. as, uh, you know, being autistic, um, I have a easily depleted social battery. So I have to, you know, be really wise with how I spend my time, you know, and, you know, need a lot of time to replenish my stores, my energy stores. And, and my best friend, who I've been best friends with since we were seven, who I wrote about in the book, um, Dom, our friendship, we can just sit mm. in total silence mm. and uh, it's not at all uncomfortable. Mm. It's just part of the unspoken language that we have. Mm. You know, I'm quite quite happy just drawing or I guess it's it's a disassociative thing, you know, but it's not, uh, it's not like rudeness or anything like that. It's just a way of, I guess, recovering. And yeah. I, I got quite used to sort of spending time 
on my own as a kid until my my um, I've got two older stepbrothers, Ben and Sam, uh, but they're quite a lot older than me. And then my brother, my half brother Oscar, wasn't born until I was yeah. fifteen, and he was born while the abuse yeah, was so occurring. You, and but to cycle back to what what you were saying before about abusers picking carefully picking their targets. I mean, they don't just go for any particular children; they go for children who are already isolated or who have relationships that or situations that lend themselves to abuse they also look for children with prior trauma or abuse histories and they do that in order to knit those abuse histories into their conspiracy because they know that children don't want to throw other people under the bus especially if those other people are close to those children. It is particularly cruel to do that because what perpetrators are expert at, experts are doing is blackmailing people, not just their victims but also their colleagues. What this particular perpetrator did was also set up an ecosystem wherein his uh, colleagues were sort of able to unintentionally, I don't think they were willing participants or or even perhaps even aware consciously that they were facilitating in his game, I suppose. Like I remember distinctly the day after my baby brother was born, sitting in the principal's office after my, my parents had had meetings with the school because... When he was first inviting me into his office and having these conversations where he was um, sharing information about himself, anecdote about himself, you know, and I was reciprocating because that's sort of like a natural thing that people do when they're having conversations. And also, like, this is a person in a duty of care, a teacher, and also somebody with a reputation for being bold out there, you know, someone who... I think he'd uh, done something to his wrist one day and somebody asked him how he did it and he just goes, oh, I fell out of bed having a threesome. You know, he was someone who didn't even bother to hide in plain sight. He just was that way. And so he had had desensitised everyone, but also the way that he introduced this sort of sexual uh, element, I suppose, to conversation with me was so specific to my own interests that it made me second guess. So there were two elements. There was a desensitisation, so it was just already there. But then it was like very personal that it was like, oh, is this even sexual? So it was very clever what he did. But I wasn't even hiding this from my parents. I came home and was saying, oh, I was in Mr Bester's office talking. Now, this, of course, raised red flags with my parents, one of whom was my father, who was himself a public high school teacher Mm. and my parents had meetings with the school and they were like get this man away from my daughter and then I when I went into hospital and was you know like I tried to hospitalized for anorexia I was hospitalized and for anorexia again yeah I had been in hospital the year before when he had taught me for a whole year mind you and I was 14 a young 14 my birthday's at the end of the year mm. in December so mm. I was 14 that entire year that he taught me mind you when he was coming up to me like going right up to my can I come right up to you sure show you what he did yeah. he comes right up to me he's like you going grey 
like right up to my face like that. I still remember it. So this is something that you talk about in your book, um, that when you learn the term negging, which is sort of something that men are well, taught to Well, men or women, do. anyone yeah. does to put, put somebody down. To, put, to sort of give them half of a compliment but mostly put them down in order to want the other person to win their approval. And Bessie yeah. did that quite manipulatively, but quite expertly with you and also the other people around you, didn't he? Well, yeah. I mean, it was something that he he used a lot of comments over and over. He had he's, he had recycled material. Mm. I mean, uh, one of the comments, I spoke to my um, friend Gillian at length who remembers a comment that, you know, she said he must have made at least 10 times about her, you know, legs sticking out of her skirt or something like mm. that. And, you know, um, uh, one of the comments that he he was renowned for making was that, um, you know, he should have been a woman because he was such a bitch and things like that. And you know, So he was are, making an array of sexist, sexualised um, and very inappropriate comments all the time, but it was very much dismissed as that's just, you know, Mr. Bester is just a bit of a wag. This is one of the things that I found most galling reading your memoir is how much the school was on notice that this guy was a problem. He'd been warned before, your parents had complained and still he was able to not just carry on but then initiate physical abuse with you. But, but I w- yeah, and I remember – so, I'm again, like I said, I remember my parents having this me- these meetings, they had two meetings yeah. with the school, yeah. telling them to stay away from me. Now, I remember the shift in this man's behaviour. Previously, prior to this time that we're in now, where words like gaslighting are very much in the zeitgeist in, the, yeah. in, in our vernacular. Well, no one would have known what that was or meant back then. Back then when I was 15. And this is what, what remind the listeners what year we would have been talking when you we're were talking 2010. Yeah. We're talking it's April. Before this widespread is, this conversations is, about this stuff. This is, this yeah. is, okay, so this is May, th- so May, th- I remember the day because it was the day after my baby brother Oscar was born, May yeah. 3rd, Yeah. because um, he was born on the 2nd of May, Sunday the 2nd of May, Monday, May 3rd. I had been in hospital the week before. Monday, May 3rd, I was sitting opposite the school principal, so the essentially the highest authority in the mm. institution, I mean, at least in, in terms of the, the staff that were walking around the school. Like, I obviously I didn't know the board or anything yeah. then. School principal, I'm sitting opposite the school principal. I'm in my uniform, right? I'm 15, a young 15 too because my birthday is, like I say. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm undiagnosed with babies. autism. Yeah. I've just come out of hospital for anorexia. There's this... Six foot two, ex-soldier from South Africa who taught me the year before, and he's fifty-eight years old. Yeah, he had prior to this been inviting me into his office. He'd offered me a key to his office as a safe place. Yeah. Now this is somebody who I had disclosed to, because. One of the things that I was really struggling with and one of the things that fed into my eating disorder was this resurfacing and anyone who's had a resurfacing memory from childhood knows that you cannot control it. It comes up in like shards of memory. Mm. When I was six years old, I was abused by an older child who asked me to undress in a closet beforehand Mm -hmm. before molesting me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it was something that disturbed me at that age. And part of the reason why I had this memory resurface is because at that time we were learning about sex at school in health class. And so all of a sudden I was like we were starting to learn these things and talk about these things and this memory became this sort of piercing 
thing sure. in my mind. Yeah. And we were also learning in history about the suffragettes. And we uh, one day we had we were watching a film with Hilary Swank called Iron Jawed Angels. And there's a scene in there where she's uh, arrested and uh, captured and taken to uh, prison mm. and is force fed. Yeah. And that year prior, when I'd been in hospital, I'd been forewarned that if I didn't eat all of my food that I would be... uh, um, Force-fed. Well, that I'd have a tube stuck down my nose. Now, I didn't think that they were serious. I thought they were just... um, You write about this in your book. Yeah. It was a a violent experience and a really, really unpleasant experience for you. Well, it was, like, in hindsight, you know, and I've spoken to other girls who... Were who went through that program. So one of the girls that I run, at the hospital yes, for this yeah. is for anorexia treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the girls that I run with, she's an incredible runner. Her name's um, Miriam. She went through that program. Uh, there's another girl, Sophie, went through that program. She's now a doctor. You know, it took us a long time to realise just how sort of traumatising that was, mm. and whether it actually helped in any way. Right. But I like I remember just you know out of nowhere this giant male nurse who was quite a like a beefy guy mm. just just walked into the room with this you know two two or three foot long sort of cream colored tube you know with a little nozzle on the end of it to connect to the bolus yeah and you know other female nurse to hold me down and there was no sort of like it was just this no preamble yeah, no and nothing. you know you know how they sort of um you know how they frame scenes in yeah. films. Yeah. Um, it's like something know, from One Flew Over the fo- Cookie's Nest or it, something. Look, awful it was a bit. I mean, it wasn't a lobotomy, yeah. certainly, but uh, <laughs> certainly thankfully. <not>. Um, <laughs> So, so all of this was going on when when um, Bester started grooming you, and basically, you know, you were kind of a soft target for him, weren't you? Well, yeah, no, but I, I, like, yeah, again, we've again we got we've I know we're jumping tangents, but yeah. to, to come back to it, I remember, I remember having disclosed to him prior to this meeting that was had. Like, I remember, I saw this other side of him, you know, because prior. Look, I just I remember how all of it happened, you know, there was... And you cover it, I mean, this is one of the wonderful things about your book, Grace, that you cover all of this and particularly um, the the events leading up to the physical abuse being initiated. You cover the grooming really well, I thought, and wrote about it in a very lucid, very unfrilly way. And it's sort of, I read it myself as a, you know, I'm, I'm a mum and I thought this should be compulsory reading for every adult who has a young person in their charge because it shows not just how the groomer and the predator grooms the child but also the people around the child and the adults around him because he needs them to sort of enable or facilitate him to a certain extent. But I do want to ask you, we ha- we ha- we're running out yeah. of time already. But look, I- Yeah, look, I just, want, I just want to make it really clear. Like I have, you know, as a survivor of child sexual abuse who has done a lot of self-reflection and I've sat with so many other survivors of child sexual abuse and I know as a person in general regardless of that experience they'll have a lot of things to work on you know and I've make, made a lot of mistakes as we all do you know and I, I've sat and I have thought about this time and I have analysed it with a fine tooth comb you know and in life very few things map neatly into good and bad okay very very few things as you know 
right side of politics and left side of politics, you know, feminism, whatever thing you pick, religion, whatever it is, whatever religion it is, very few things map neatly into good and bad. Yeah. But this experience of grooming and the other experiences of grooming that I have learned about, it was so textbook what Mm. this man did. Mm. You know, I was a 14-year-old girl Mm. when I met him. And I know I have always had quirks, but I did not want to have a sexual relationship with that man. And I was happily minding my own business and I did not treat him any differently to anybody else until he began his Mm. process Mm. that was very deliberate of psychological manipulation. Mm. And I reacted to that because he groomed me. And that is what happens to children who are groomed. And I was particularly vulnerable to it because prior to that, I had a a history of abuse which he knitted into Mm. my past. Now, I have sat with so many children who speak of the shame that is weaponised against them. You know, boys who have had erections and wonder why and stuff like that. It is not the child's shame. This man is a doctor of chemistry, mind Mm. you, too. He knows exactly what happens to children's bodies and minds. He knows this. He had children who were twice my age at the time. He had a wife, okay, that we are still having these conversations. Yes. That people still offer sympathy to people like this is beyond me. Mm. Well, I tell you, Grace, it's very difficult to read your book and come out on the other side without knowing exactly the kind of person that you were up against when you were a very vulnerable child. I do want to ask you just a little bit, because I think listeners will be interested just about your reflections now on your time as Australian of the Year. You were absolutely flung into the spotlight and you've alluded to the fact that the media coverage was difficult to navigate as a survivor of abuse, but also just as a person who probably didn't have any idea really how to do that kind of stuff. Is there any? How do you reflect on that year now? And uh, you said you have alluded to mistakes that you think you've made. What mistakes do you think you made? Oh, I don't know. Um... Look, I think sometimes I can be um, too rigid in in my opinions. Uh, I don't know, but maybe that. that look, I, I I don't know. I think it's hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's hard. I think that I would have tried to have broken away and from the perhaps some of the advice that we were receiving early early is on. Is that advice from the Australia Day Council? Yes. Yeah. So you, um, but I mean, it's there hard have to been say it's, when it's the water you're swimming in. You know, it's hard to. It's there have been various say. things that have been reported about. Um, mm. You know, your difficulties with that council. Is there anything that you would recommend, for example, that they do with us in the future to handle? You know, particularly young people who are appointed to that role. Oh, look, it all depends. It's hard because I, 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 look, I just don't think there's enough tailoring to the experience. You know, like right off the bat. You know, the next day we stepped into a situation where, you know, you just sort of the previous winner, um, James Mewkey, who's a lovely, lovely man, um, you know, and a, and a um, phenomenal in the work that he does. But we come from very different backgrounds yeah, with I mean, very different purposes yeah. and very different goals. Yeah. And there was just sort of this expectation that the framework that was set up, that was in place for James, would transfer over and there would be this just 
seamless yeah. transition. Yeah. And that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, well, does, does that make I mean, sense? He's kind of like a late. I can't. I don't know how old he is, but well, he's, he's a, a mid to late career professional. Yes, who, and he works as a doctor. Yeah, and and you're you were a young woman who was coming out of a traumatic situation. You just come home from overseas. You've yes. been living in the United States, and, and there you was no at that time. until the very end of the year, until we had to sort of we had to ask. You know, and this wasn't a sort of like there was no trauma support. There was no mental health support or anything like that. That, that I mean, that, and that came out of my own pocket in the end. So, like, which is uh, fine, I suppose. But you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's no, absolutely. there was no, yeah. like, so, we, and, so and Max, in the end, like, so Max and I did, we, we went our own way. Max, like we, Max, who are you talking about? Your Max, fiance? Yes, my fiance. Yeah. Yes, you met not long before you were appointed Australian of the Year. Yeah, that I met him a week before or six days before I was named Tasmanian. Yeah, which is the run up to the to the big prize. Um, yes. Although we call it, a, I call it a prize, but actually, as you pointed award, out, it's an award, <laughs> and it's an, it's very much an unpaid unpaid role. I just, Although, wanna, of course, I have to, I do have to say that it's, you know, like it's an incredible opportunity, and I don't take it lightly. And of course, it has led to lots of lots of great things that more than anything I'm grateful for what it has enabled for other survivors mm. and the hope that it has given them because, mm. you know, it's the power uh, that it is um, that I think that like it, like symbolically, I suppose, and like which is translated to a reality in um, dissolving and just sort of redirecting the shame, that is worth it for me, you know, and that uh, – you know, it has been like the like the leverage. We've seen a law change in the ACT, and it might not seem like a big deal for somebody who's perhaps uh, slightly removed from the cause. But just to change that word, like to remove that word relationship from the crime of persistent child sexual abuse, that's a huge thing. And now there's going to be a national review of sexual assault legislation, this which has come off the back of the meeting that I had with the Attorneys General on the 12th of November last year, which is a phenomenal opportunity. I will take, I would take that. All, like the media can say whatever they like about me. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter. Call me whatever you like in the public eye. I have lots of private support and that's what matters to me at the end of the day. I've got I a 12-year-old brother and so long as he doesn't call me um, names, that's fine. Um, you know, he's I just want to clarify for, <laughs> li- for, li- for listeners that you're talking about um, one of the goals of the Grace Tame Foundation is to have harmonised sexual assault or sorry, child sexual abuse legislation, which is different in all the different jurisdictions. It is. And at the moment, a lot of the wording, including the wording that your predator was convicted under, it makes it sound is has the it word relationship li- it and it gives gives a le- legitimacy to the idea that it's just a romantic relationship somehow that occurs between a child and a predator and the age factor is a mere technicality um so you're you're seeking to have that changed yes yeah yeah i, I we we've been talking for quite a long time yes sorry time's run away with us do tend to um it's great we love a loquacious interviewee <laughs> in this Place. Sorry, it's more that I just. It's, <laughs> no, it's great. I want to ask you hyper-ver- quickly because I think hyperverbal is one of my autistic <laughs> symptoms. I love that. that I just- oh my god, my seven-year-old's hyperverbal. Sometimes I wish he wasn't. I want to ask you what is next for Grace Tame? What does the next year look like for you, and what do you want to do with your future? I I don't know. I've never known what the next year of my life looks like. I tend to 
you know, you're not a five-year plan kind of person, Grace. Well, no. I mean, as a like, I've just always lived in survival mode. I don't like. I, I feel like that's one of the things that's like the biggest misconception for me is like, people are like, oh, you asked me. I'm like. No, first of all, like didn't nominate myself for Australian of the Year. Still don't know how the awards process works. Just have gone, been flying by the seat of my pants since I was born. I'm still going to do it. I'm more motivated by the the why and the who. You know, we've got you know our foundation is not this big beast of a foundation. It's really just like a little office of us working, and we've got we've got really small goals. You know, but they're really clear, and they're they're going to enable us to you know reach other goals in the future and that sort of part of it is like not biting off too much um, yep. more than you can chew and uh, um, you know again I'm using cliches but it's a marathon not a sprint yeah in addressing this meeting of attorneys general and having this broader umbrella this is about the, this is about yes, the law harmonization harmonization yep. which you know and this comes off the back of decades upon decades I must say of work from survivor advocates from academics and other experts in the sector and that includes child sexual abuse domestic violence and sexual assault and there must be a distinction between those things because they're all very different issues you know like well, for example know, domestic violence is the family courts child sexual abuse is a different thing it's criminal court you know like there's a reason why well, I get I really frustrated we, we when the media did, detest like they detest yes. nuance and they lump you know everything well, in and together also, and they don't I, sometimes I wonder if it's a sort of um, and, I, sometimes I wonder if it's almost a kind of in, internalised sexism, sexism thing and we saw this I think particularly under the Morrison government that all of that stuff is just lumped in as sort of women's business, chick issues, because, it, yeah, as you say, it's, it's as though we don't have room in the conversation or maybe we don't have the stomach to kind of realise that child sexual abuse is quite a discreet issue from domestic violence. Very but all of these issue. things we were talking about all together last year in this sort of huge moment. There are overlaps, moment. but it's yeah. like there's, there's yeah. like this, again, yeah. there's, there's this erosion of specificity in language and in dealing with these issues that actually does more harm to the cause than good mm. because, first of all, general public understanding, but then also actually preventing and responding to them. You mm. know, if we don't if we don't deal with them, like like actually prevent and respond to them properly, they're only going to get worse. Yes, and we like education is key. First of all, yeah. Sorry, I see that we're running out of time. Yes, I. Good one. <laughs> that was supposed to be. What? Nothing. What? Nothing. Keep going. I interrupted you. Oh. I'm a, I'm, I'm like a squirrel <laughs> showing me a no, bag I'm of sorry, acorns. I showed, you a little, <laughs> I showed you a tiny thing. You were saying that um, we need to be specific about our language. Yes, that's exactly right. It's like there's this thing happening at the moment with people using this like this broad term of like cancel culture and it's like okay well with under that umbrella term I mean like are you talking about Steve Price who's just really butthurt all the time or are you talking about (laughs) generally just talking about somebody who's actually been silenced by law or are you talking about you know like people who've actually been driven out of their country because you know people are cough cough you know Prue McSween talking that she would want to run somebody over, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, there's lots of different things, you know? There's Yes, and I think, and I mean... The, the, and that is an example of there's a lack of specificity of language when people can just use this term of, like, this umbrella term of cancel culture under which lots of different examples of something fall, mm. including real crime. Mm. And when people use this term cancel culture, which is actually just a stupid privileged myth, you know, weaponised by people who, you know, 
like again get butt hurt um, most of the time. As I've never far heard as that term before. I uh, quite butt like hurt it. means that they're just. A, you know, <laughs> I can guess. I can guess. I get yeah. the nuance. It's, yeah. <laughs> again, it's mostly used as far as I see by high-powered people who have very big salaries, um, who want something to to talk about on the front page of their newspapers or in their um, radio shows or on their television uh, programs. As a as a columnist, <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment on on that allegation. No. Grace. Um, um, but, but you know what? I mean, the same thing with conspiracy theories. It's very con- there's like there's conspiracy theories, and then there's conspiracy theories. There's like it's very convenient that you can under that under that one umbrella, you've got you've got a whole spectrum of things that includes the Sasquatch and JFK being assassinated. That's a very broad. Very broad spectrum, you know. And I like, think we're going to have to get you back on to have a whole different, yeah, no, a whole I, different podcast about my, cancel next culture. Next time I'll bring my tinfoil hat. <laughs> Grace, <laughs> it is always it's such a pleasure to meet you. I've met some cool people in my job, lucky me. But it's just been a real pleasure to meet you oh, thanks, and Jeff. to spend time with you. The book is a really wild ride, and it, your voice is so strong in it. And I think anybody who picks it up will see that. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks. Sorry for going off topic. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carcatzel. Technical assistance from Cormac Lally. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend. <laughs>